Welcome to the first episode of the Toasted Sister podcast. I'm your host, Andy Murphy. Here's a little bit about me. I work in radio. I help produce a live one-hour show that plays every weekday. And we cover a variety of important topics, including topics about food. And every Monday, we have our editorial meeting where we pitch ideas about future shows. And I usually come with two or three ideas for food-related shows. So much so that the executive producer put a limit on how many food shows I can produce. So here's this podcast where I talk about food with other people who love food. But it's not just about that. It's about where we come from and how we connect with what we eat. And me? I come from Crown Point, New Mexico. It's on the Navajo Nation, and I'm Navajo. You might be wondering what Navajo food is and what exactly Native American food is. We'll get to that because this podcast explores the rich and tasty culinary culture of Native America. I'll be talking with Native chefs and Native foodies. So without further ado, let's get started. I have Chef Carlos with me. Carlos, please introduce yourself. Right. Uh, so my name is Carlos Baca from the Southern Ute Indian Reservation in Colorado. Uh, my tribes are Tewa Dene and Ute. So basically, this is about five, six years ago now, I was trying to figure out something to give back to the community, in a sense. And uh, a lot of people over time had mentioned that I had a lot of indigenous things going on in my food which to me was just what I grew up with. And so I founded the Taste of Native Cuisine in 2011 and just been building on it from there. Where have you been working out of for the last couple of years? It seems like it was a really, you know, kind of secluded, fancy place. Right. So Dunton Hot Springs is located near Telluride, Colorado. Um, Number one all-inclusive resort in the United States. Very high standard, high bar. Um, initially, it gave a, a beautiful place to integrate indigenous food culture into this vast world audience. But also with that vast world audience, I couldn't just focus on indigenous food. So I basically, you know, after three years, I'm sitting there going, uh, I'm kind of losing focus. Um, even with the ability to take guests out and go foraging and provide them a meal just basically out of what we went and got that day it was a beautiful thing. But when it all boiled down to it, I, I had to leave to, to refocus my goals. And so you came to Albuquerque. Why, why Albuquerque? <laughs> uh, a woman? <laughs> no. Um, there's a lot going on here. When I look at where I'm going to go next... I kind of really just, I look at food product, um, and in that, because I'm a foraging maniac, all I do is walk around and say, can I eat that? I have the mountains pretty pretty down-packed, and New Mexico not so much, so this is my next, the next move. How did you become so 
big in foraging? Was it out of need or was it something that you just thought you had to go back, uh, you know, to the literal roots of food? Mm, no. So my grandfather, for as long as I can remember, I mean, he said he passed when I was 16. I'm 40 now. But when I was young, whether it was going to get pinon or bear root or any of these things, we always went out. You know, and he liked to take the kids, he liked the family to partake in it. And so it just got instilled in me at such a young age that I've just built off of it continuously over time. Walk me through uh, an average foraging trip. What is it like uh, being out there, you know, looking for food and, you know, and in the kitchen, nourishing yourself and somebody else with that out there? Right. Um, in the restaurant version of it, so like being at, at Dunton Hot Springs and taking a guest out is a little bit different than when I go out. Um, I still offer prayer, but I don't sing. And when I forage by myself, I always sing. Usually I start with that, make an offering. I, I definitely go an offering to each plant. And I mean that in like species-wise. You know, I mean, I don't make one every time I stop, but... uh there's a symbiosis in nature with things, you know. Like people really know me for mushroom harvesting like a maniac. So uh, the symbiotic relationships and things between a, a moss and a tree and and the mushroom and this other mushroom that it talks to, and you know, so there's a correlation sitting there where you have to garner that aspect of it. And so all foods are like that. You know, you really have to just get out there and, and know who they are in communication with in their network and able to find them. So you can catch me doing like 20 miles by myself. I just go, so. Wow. At Dunton, you served a lot of rich people because that's a very exclusive, uh, expensive place to stay. Uh, you know, what was it like uh, you know, serving that population. I'm guessing a lot of them were non-natives. Yes. Um, it was unique. But it opened a lot of of doorways, and there was always a, an interesting segue into indigenous politics, right? So when it came to indigenous foodways or how people don't know about indigenous foods, right? Like, so that was like one of the original warfares against our people, right? So it was this destroy their foods so they can't, you know, have a subsistence. And so it's always allowed, it allowed me to really portray us in, in a better culturally rich and diverse with our, with our food ways. It, it's so diverse. And I've come across over the years taboos in certain tribes. So say with you, we don't eat mushroom. I did an event like a year and a half now for the Grand Canyon Trust. And Knowing that, and it was back home, so I, I said, well, I have all these mushrooms I forage, but I'm going to do them in a separate little dish, so that way, you know, people can avoid it. On the other hand, I did all these things with choke cherries and nettles and all these, and I had some Diné women come up and say, what is that? I said, oh, we can't eat that. Mm. You know, so <laughs> that's just a viewpoint on the diversity of it. You really have to know the intricacies. And um, you mentioned in that uh, Facebook message, I asked you what are a couple topics that you would like to focus on. And one of them was um, 
uh, you said one of you, one of your favorite things to talk about was you know your quest to outpace the media's attempt to define us. When you say like define us, do you mean uh, us as native chefs or us as Native Americans? Mm, it's all the same, yeah. you know. Where it's all one unit. Um, what I've come across in the mainstream media, if you go online and read any articles in reference to me um, outside of probably Dorado, <laughs> all the, they all have uh, kind of pick and choose how they feel they're going to portray us, right? Um, and go to like to Nephi Craig uh, when he did in one of his NPR interviews and he said, it's like we're still in the past, right? Somebody can go to Google and type in Native American and nothing right now is there, you know? And so defining ourselves and not being, you know, sort of the Hollywood Indian, <laughs> any of those things, right? So yeah. every time I talk to these younger chefs, um, these ones that are coming up, uh, some you don't know names of yet, like uh, Gary Austin, who worked for me up there at Dunn for a good long time, or Brian Yazzie, who's coming up, you know, and we conversate, it's like, oh, I have this interview and I have this thing coming up. And I'm like, yeah, be very direct, right? Don't leave an ability for them to stretch it in any direction because I face that, you know, uh, in some of those articles where, uh, say, like Zagat, for instance, um, proclaimed me to be the leader of the indigenous food movement. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I literally got on the phone and, like, went left on him. I'm like, no. It's the exact opposite of the very first line of the interview was, is there ever going to be an indigenous Thomas Keller? I said, we're too, fo we're, we're too community-based. We're too focused on group and, and unity, you know, and not about self. But somewhere in me saying that, I'm the leader of something, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> as, a, as a part of it, instead of a piece of it. So the ability of, of media, once it's out of your hands, Right. Once you do an interview and it's gone, I've learned to to tread very lightly, mm. and and definitely be very definitive about what I'm trying to say. When did you know that food was your thing? Did you have some kind of epiphany, or was there something you ate that just sparked something in your head, and you knew <laughs> you had to do that? You knew you had to be in the kitchen. <laughs> I always make this joke although it's an absolute truth, is I became a chef because of commodities. You know, like, I really just, I mean, think of the, the, the small amount of things we had growing up and my attempts to do anything to make it taste better. Mm -hmm. It's kind of just where I got my start. I just, I mean, like, oh, God, this stuff is horrible. <laughs> what era of commodity foods did you grow up in? Was it the canned meat and powdered eggs? Because it, it kind of changed over time. Yeah, that's definitely the era. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can picture it in my head. It's a horrible sight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that pale pinkish yellow sack of powdered eggs. Yeah. yeah. I, that's probably like everybody's era until it just changed like 10 years ago. Um, oh, uh, what's your definition of indigenous cuisine? Can we can we put a one definition to it, or do you think everybody's going to have their own definition? Yeah, I don't think we can, mm. um, because like I went back to the diversity of cuisines, 
they're, they're just so vastly different. I mean, there's staple foods. I mean, corn, right? Beans, squash that have, that were all across the U.S. and Mexico and South America, right? Um, but we don't have wild rice here, you know? So, I mean, that's a definitive of the Great Lakes tribes and they don't have chili up there. I think what it'll become is individuality. It will be the definition. You mentioned a couple of uh, indigenous chefs so far. Can you tell me about what this indigenous chef network looks like today? Hmm. I would say it's almost an underground thing, you know. Um, We all are doing our own things, um, but we all still conversate. It's a group thing, right? So it's something that we, if we're going to hold the definition of it, within ourselves, right, and within what we're trying to accomplish with it. We have to communicate, right? We have to say, well, I'm doing this, or, you know, I was thinking about doing this, how do you feel about that, or, you know, uh, you've been through this and I haven't been through this, what was it like, uh, you know, and just all these these small informational pieces. Um, I, I talk to the majority of them at least twice a month, we all have to stick to the same goal. You know, like we can get written into into the books how we're perceived or we can write our own story. So, you know, food tells a story and the ancestral memory that we carry is something that I always try to uh, to bring forth whenever I do super traditional things. Um, uh, one of my f- things that I, I, I've been kind of messing with this dish for a while, but and taking these different concepts, um, you know, using like a chi. But I use bison, not lamb, because everyone's going to be mad at me, but it's not traditional. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a conversation with uh, some of my relations from the Pueblos, and he's telling me a story about, he said, oh, my, my great-grandma was telling me, we're talking about, blue corn and uh, I had just given the drummer some bear root and he said yeah you know they used to make cakes when they went out to hunt in the winter they would do these blue corn with the the bear root ground up in it and they would sun dry them they would just take them with them in their bags and go hunt so well, how do I incorporate that concept into a dish right so I started doing these blue corn cakes with the bear root and this nice red chili and that chi right when it comes to recipes, my brain doesn't work that way, um, especially coming from this restaurant I just was at. It was basically, there's no menu. So every day, multiple times a day, I'm coming up with stuff sh- fresh off the head, right? And so it's it's the concepts, it's these theories, these thoughts I get in my brain, like these flavor profiles that I can taste in my head that I just kind of grab and think, oh, this is wonderful together, you know, and then I make it. It's a beautiful thing, and that's that, so. Are you a food purist? Um, yes, for the most part. Um, I mean, I grow my own food Mm. a lot. Uh, I have my own seed bank. I've collected over years and years. I have 40, 50 different types of chilies. I have probably 20 different types of corns. I have, I can't count me squash, you know what I mean? So, um, 
and then I forage and all these things I collect for the winter. And I spent probably four hours today, like putting forage goods in new containers and, you know, I mean, so it's like winter preparation. Um, I'd say, I don't know, it's tough. It's tough to not have to go to the store sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I prefer wild game. Once you eat that way for long enough, you can taste when something's wrong. And so when I go to the store, I'm like, eh, I'm like real picky. You know, like I went to the rail yards yesterday for the big market they had, and they had some, you know, local farm vendors set up, and I was like, oh, yes, come here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, because that's what my network in Colorado is. You know, like I know all, I'm on hug basis with all my farmers. Um, a lot of my family aunts, the tribe gives buffalo to to people, you know, and so it's, on the other hand, I have a soft spot for VCs, so I'm not sure. <laughs> right. Do, do you ever find yourself at a point where maybe um, you are maybe a little bit judgy towards other people who, a lot of us, <laughs> a lot of us, you know, <laughs> we can't, we can't afford to eat like that. We can't, we don't have the time to eat like that. We don't have the resources or even the connections to, um, really eat and, 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 you know, spend that much time on our food, picking our food, even thinking about our food. A lot of us are throw it in the crock pot, make sure there's enough of it for the week and, uh, go to work. <laughs> well, see, now I'm going to be judgmental and say that's a choice, though. Mm. Right? I mean, as a chef, I work 80, 100 hours a week, and I can still find time to do it, right? Because, you just, I mean, it's just a matter of dedication, really. I mean, going out to eat with me is a nightmare. My mom is like, is there anywhere we can go eat that you're not going to just sit and critique and judge? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, probably not, so just pick, you know? Yeah. Um, I prefer to cook at home. Mm-hmm. I'm disappointed 95% of the time when I go out to eat, so definitely judgmental. You know, I, mean, I can't really judge people in the way that they eat, though, because I understand the culture that's created it, and so it's not like I've always been this way, right? Like, I mean, I was lucky that I grew up in my family hunted. Um, my grandfather had the most beautiful garden. I've, I don't know, still I'm trying to do it, you know, do the same thing he did <laughs> and all these years I still can't make mine that that beautiful you know I mean uh, the knowledge that they had that our elders had you know and growing stuff as opposed to what we have is not the same yeah I don't know I think that uh, if you make yourself cook just a couple times a week stop at a farmer's market talk to the farmers see what their practices are you know I mean it's just a few hours a week it's not, It'll it'll definitely change the way you view things. You know, a lot of chefs that I have talked to, a lot of native chefs, they refer to, um, you know, the bad health we have now. You know, Indians are overweight. We have diabetes. And it was never like this because, you know, we always had a really clean, very organic, down-to-earth diet. And now we have commodity cheese and we have, you know, fast food and we have you know all that stuff in the middle of the grocery store chips right up front soda right there mm-hmm. do you ever feel maybe frustrated when 
you know, you keep seeing that our, our rates, our obesity rates going up. You keep seeing a lot of, you know, your maybe even your cousins or people oh, yeah. in your family oh, yeah. not, uh, you know, thinking more about their food, thinking more about their health, thinking more about cooking. Mm. You can look at like a comparison to, you know, type in that Native American in, in Google and, and see these nice fit, healthy, strong warriors mm-hmm. and women, right? And what we are now. The American, you know, the dichotomy that we have anything we want all the time, um, it's always available, is not beneficial to us. What I always preach is is the, the place and time theory. It's not really theory. It's, it's a reality. But, um, you know, where you are in the world, it doesn't matter whether we're talking here with indigenous people or whoever in Norway and Japan or whatever is that we always lived in a cyclical nature. So with foods, we ate what was provided at that time. And it's what created the optimal machine, you know, for us to go chase down a deer or to, you know, not that I don't have friends that don't still do that now, but, yeah. um, and I do mean literally. And, and it's just like for me talking about defining what indigenous food is. That's part of being defined, the the eating habits that we have now, right? That's been our definition. This is, all right, well, we're still on a ration system up here in our minds, mm-hmm. right? We still have that colonial mind frame that we haven't overcome. Um, and that goes with all all the things in indigenous culture in the in our modern time, right? It's like, so the master has handed the reins of his his control over to us and we still hold them to ourselves. Until we decide to drop those chains and drop those weapons and really take a good hard look at ourselves and, and you know what we're doing to ourselves. What do you do? You know, I mean that's mm-hmm. part of, of what this indigenous food movement is. Right? There's a lot of bringing back these old flavors and these old ways and these old techniques and actually honoring our food. I've had this conversation in in parts with Nephi Craig and Sean Sherman, but, you know, just this concept. Of, if food is medicine, what are we as chefs? What's our responsibility to our people? You know, and just, just sitting here with this with you. This is part of that moment, the momentum and the movement all in all. In all so hopefully we'll get through it. What's your favorite uh, utensil you have in your kitchen? Favorite utensil? Uh, my hands. <laughs> hands. Who's your toughest critic? Oh, myself, of course. Do you have like a, a food fiasco story? Food fail? Kitchen fail? <laughs> mm. That I'd like to share? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems like, you, you know, you guys are flawless all the time. All these interviews, all these stories and radio pieces and stuff. I mean, what's one time you felt like, damn it. I'll give you my failed <laughs> my, my failure story. Okay. And it's funny. I'm not going to mention my, my chef friend that was involved in the scenario, but was it a restaurant, Drango, and... We have something that's called palm puree, right, which is basically a very fine mashed potato. You run it through a food mill, then you 
push it through a chinois, which is basically this little fine mesh thing, where it's just like this creamy, creamy, lovely thing. There's two different lines. One serves regular mashed potatoes, the fine dining side, and serve this on this menu. So we have these last orders. There's nothing left. So we run to the other line. We're like, all right, well, we can make this happen. Well, they're out of potatoes. There's two orders left. And uh, I have no idea why or how long these boxed mashed potatoes sat back in this storage unit like <laughs> hidden back there. I have no idea where they came from or any of this and uh we looked at each other and we just like god whipped them together sent them out and promised to never talk about it again <laughs> <laughs> they get the customers like notice I doubt it <laughs> you know I doubt it but I mean for us as chefs it was like uh, this horrific i mean this is years and years and years ago and it still stays <laughs> in my mind i'm like oh god i can't believe we did that yeah all right so carlos thank you so much for joining us that's a wrap on the first episode of toasted sister well thank you very much for having me and uh hopefully the series will do well and give some excellent voice to all these uh chefs we have out here indigenous foodies and I don't know about the academics, Liz, but, uh, <laughs> kidding. Yeah, thank you very much. That wraps up the first episode of the Toasted Sister podcast. You can follow Chef Baca's Taste of Native Cuisine page on Facebook. took some planning and a couple meetings to put this podcast together. I'd like to say thank you to Monica Brain for helping me to engineer this first episode and giving me inspiration to get this thing off the ground, finally. Music is by C.W. Ion, the one-man band out of Las Cruces, New Mexico. Check out his music by going to his website, cwion.com. That's c-w-a-y-o-n.com. Also check out his Bandcamp page, cwion.bandcamp.com. You can also keep tabs on the Toasted Sister podcast by visiting the website toastedsisterpodcast.com and following on Facebook and SoundCloud. Look for the logo that I drew. It's a cornstalk with a microphone on the top. <laughs>